Welcome to church, everybody. Welcome if you're visiting with us. We always get people visiting Christmas holidays, coming from other places. Pray for safe travel. Uh, for those of you that are here, that you're traveling, you came to see your family, and they made you come this morning. We just bless you this morning as you were forced into the house of God for this one Sunday of the year. No, it's great to have all of you. What a great place to be, and what great worship this morning. Hey, don't you love our worship team? Way to go, worship team. For those of you who are bugging me already about wearing a suit, I've already had like six people go. One lady comes to me, she goes, I've been coming here for 25 years, I've never seen you in a suit. So take the picture now, because it's Christmas. My wife doesn't come to the first service. So I got up and I thought, I'm gonna put my suit on. And then when my wife comes in the second service, she's gonna be like, hubba, hubba, hubba. <laughs> it's working so far. <laughs> you guys, I just wanna say thank you from myself and, and from our pastoral staff for the, 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 the Christmas offering you guys did. We were just shocked at the, the, the degree of the blessing. We were literally, all of us were like, what? It, I don't know what to say. If I say any more, I'll cry, so I'm not gonna say any more. But thank you so much. What a generous congregation. You guys have always been that way. And um, we, we always wanna keep the innocence of I don't want to say the preciousness of money, but the innocence of never manipulating people for money, never trying to get money out of people. And you know, if you don't give, we're going to go under. You'll never hear that here. You'll just always hear that it's a blessing to give to God. And then we all decide. We teach on tithing, and I'll probably do this sometime in the new year and teach on, on giving. And, and one of the things that I thought, because of, of what you had done, and just giving as a blessing straight to the... There's, there's an interesting... Uh, teaching in the Old Testament, what happens when you give to the priest? What happens when you give to the prophet? They were, they, you know, when they would go to the man of God, they would bring a gift in their hand. And it wasn't that, like they were buying something from God, but there's a spiritual principle there. My wife and I, uh, for years, have sown into different men or women, uh, often that we know because of what they carry, and we always get a blessing from it. But there's a way to there's a way to understand that sowing and reaping, that when you give, like when people give something to us, Personally, we've just always said, because we learned this from somebody else, they said, we said, what are, you, what are you naming your seed for? And I've had people look at me and go, what? I said, you're giving something to, to uh, myself or Pastor Clive or, or uh, Pastor John, you're, so you're sowing directly into somebody. So when you give to someone like that as a, as a man of God, you're giving into their office. In other words, you're giving into who they, who they represent in Christ. And I said, what are you, what are you believing for? And, and I always bring people back to, like people have told me, you know what, my car's a beater. I'm believing for a new car. Then that's where we say, okay, we agree with that, that that seed is going for that. People have said a new house. Somebody has said, you know what, for uh, my, my son to have a job or for my wife or for this. Because you can name your seed, you know, you can sow your seed. So I'm going to try and teach a little bit on that. But just wanted to say, think about that, you know, just for the blessing that you gave us. What do you need? What is it that you, because when you give to anyone, whether it's us as the pastoral staff here or somebody else who stands in an office that represents God, there's something that comes back to us, to us as a group or to, to you, uh, uh, that you can reap from. And um, so think about that and pray it. What do you need? I believe we're going to see things happen in 2024 that are going to come much more quickly than what we've seen before. Uh, years ago, I was driving to Lethbridge. We were doing TV at that time, and it was... Um, October, and the combines were out all over the place. And you know, we've, we've, we understood, we've understood for almost 40 years now the principle of giving and receiving. We've just done that, you know, and you've done it as a church, and many of us have practiced it. And, uh, and oftentimes you give, and sometimes you're giving in, this, in the winter, as it were, in the spiritual winter. But I'm driving to Lethbridge, and I'm seeing these combines, and I'm just, you know, praying in the spirit, just quiet, getting ready to do and tape my shows. And... Uh, and the Lord spoke to my heart. And he said, there is a season of harvest. And the moment he said that because of what was happening around me, I thought, there's a time of year when the farmers know to harvest. 
And we've seen seasons of harvest in the past. I believe that we are entering, well, not entering, we're already in, but I believe that there's a season of harvest that's, be, that's just opening wider and wider. And it's not just harvest of money, but, but the end time harvest of souls, the end time harvest of blessing, the end time harvest of the plan and the purpose of God. God is not done yet. And there's a big explosion that's coming towards the earth that we're starting to see the little bits on. But that harvest incorporates blessings for the people of God so that he blesses us so we can be a blessing, right? I heard a guy say, well, you know, I'm just believing God just for enough for me and my family. You know, that's actually kind of selfish because if all you've got enough for is you and your family, then what do you have to give away? What do you have to be a blessing to somebody else? I heard one old preacher say, I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. And he said, because I can give to anyone, anytime, anything I want. You know, I was just, who was I just uh, reading after? Oh, I forget, some famous guy. He said, you know, Kenneth Copeland catches a lot of flack because, because of his lifestyle. And he said, I can't count on my two hands any number of times of the airplanes that he's given away to people in Africa who needed an airplane. And he said, I hear about this one and I hear about that one and I know about this one and I know about that one. He said, the man's given away more airplanes than I can count. Well, if you sow airplanes, what do you get back? Sure. If you sow love, what do you get back? Love. You sow hatred, what do you get back? Hatred. You sow the good things that God's given you, then God gives you that back. You know, I gave away clothes and somebody gave me this suit. And I thought it looked pretty good. I was like, but I put it on and check it with my wife. And then if she does that, then I know this is, this is a good suit. And kudos to you guys for giving, you know, like John said when he was up here, for giving the good, good winter stuff. You know, my cousins were missionaries in Ethiopia for many years, my aunt and my uncle, and this would be back in the 50s and 60s, and my aunt said that they used to get these care packages that would come from here, from North America, and she said they would get tea bags, but they were used tea bags. Because the missionaries, you know, they don't really need to have stuff as good as we do, so we'll use the tea bag and then send it to them. Can you imagine? You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't give somebody a box of chocolates and take one out. Like, I mean, if somebody gave you this box of chocolates and one was missing, something, they just missed the whole purpose right there. It's like, these are not your chocolates, you know? You give a box of chocolates to somebody, you give them the whole box. Why? Because it's, it's what the gift is more than the chocolates. If you, if you said, you know, there's only three or four missing, I just took out my favorite ones. The person's gonna be like, thanks. Right? Come on. How'd I get on that? Oh, brother. Okay, we're gonna have a little bit of fun here before I get, and I'm gonna, I'm, unfortunately, I'm gonna shred some of your Christmas stories this year because <clears throat> we're gonna talk about... Um, what actually happened. We were at the men's breakfast a couple of weeks ago and uh, Pastor Clive did a quiz with 20 questions about Christmas. And the silence from the men was deafening. Because <laughs> he was asking us these questions and, and guys were just getting them wrong all over the place. And, and halfway through the quiz, I thought, I'm gonna talk about like what actually happened on Christmas. So fellas... Listen up. And, and if you were here at the men's breakfast, don't answer any of these questions because I want the others to suffer like you did when you were at the men's breakfast and those questions got asked, okay? If you were not at the men's breakfast, then you can answer the question, but don't, if you really know Christmas well, don't answer all of the questions because then everybody else is gonna think you're a know-it-all, okay? So if you answer one right and then I say good, way to go, okay? So let me give you some of these questions. Who told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? Angel Gabriel? Is that it? Final answer? Caesar Augustus ordered all people to go back to the city of their forefathers to be taxed. <laughs> it has begun. What form of transportation did Mary and Joseph use to get to Bethlehem? Donkey? 
ox, Uber. The Bible does not say anything about the kind of transportation. It was about a 130-kilometer trip for them. Tradition says it is likely that they rode some type of animal, but the Bible gives no details. I read an interesting report. Um, uh, one of the researchers said Mary would have been young. You know that when Mary and, and uh, Joseph were betrothed, she was probably between 14 and 16. Okay, so she was just a girl. She was, so she's in her third trimester, and this particular guy said, which would have been easier for Mary? Would it have been easier for her to walk beside the donkey with the donkey carrying the bags and ride occasionally, or would it have been more uncomfortable for her to actually sit in, at nine months, sit on that donkey and ride? So it's just interesting, because the Bible doesn't tell us, but you, you'll find out as we go through today how much tradition we've put into Christmas. And that's not necessarily bad, but it's interesting when you find out the real story. Okay, which Old Testament prophet had the most to say about the birth of Christ? Isaiah? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> You're right. Isaiah had the most to say about the birth of Christ. In the accounts announcing the birth of Christ in Matthew and Luke, how many times did an angel or angels appear? This was a hard one. Two times, somebody said? Three times? How many bid now? Four. How many? Three and a four. And a four, and anybody says four. Three times. Are we stuck? So three? Good for you guys. Three times, once to each to Mary and Joseph, and once to the shepherds. Three times. When the shepherds went looking for Jesus, what sign, what was the sign they were to look for? Did somebody say a star? Okay, and what else? A manger? Wrapped in swaddling cloths. Correct, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. You'd be surprised how many of the guys got the star. Oh, they saw a star. Oh, <clears throat> okay. How many wise men or magi came to see Jesus? <laughs> now they're getting riled up. Now it's like, hooah. The Bible does not say. Tradition says three because of the gifts. And for the good nativity set, you can only stuff so many wise men into the nativity set. So... <clears throat> What is the name of the person who was told that he would not die until he saw the Savior? Simon? Simon? How many say it was Simon? How many say it was Simeon? How many of you say it was Anna? How many say it was Moses? Simeon is the correct answer. What animals does the Bible say were present at the birth of Jesus? Cows, ox, sheep, someone say sheep, okay, chickens, it would kind of take away from nativity, wouldn't it, if there was chickens there, it would just, it just like, the Bible doesn't list any animals present at the manger, tradition puts them there. Some of you are going to go home and just take your whole nativity apart. Just like, it's just not the same without the donkey. Which two of the four Gospels do not mention the birth of Christ? John? John and Mark. John and Mark are the correct answers. So there's some of you that are really quiet the whole time. I know you're on a learning curve right here because it's just like, so just hang on. Who told Joseph the baby's name was to be Jesus? Right. Way to go. Give yourselves a hand. That's pretty good. You guys did way better than the 830 service. You did, maybe you're just a little rowdier or something like that. Christians began celebrating Christmas in the fourth century, and we've been celebrating it now for 19 centuries 
Hallelujah. You know what I love about the things of God? They outlast everything else in the world. They outlast governments. They outlast nations. Because God makes his things last. And he makes the celebration for his son last. So let's look at a couple of interesting things about Christmas. Um, I was reading in a newsletter this week where they quoted Rick Renner, if you're familiar with Rick Renner, a prolific author, wrote a book called Christmas, The Rest of the Story. And he said this, he said that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, interviewed Mary about the birth of Jesus when she was living in Ephesus where she had moved with the Apostle John. So if you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said, woman, behold your son. And he said, son, and he was speaking to the one that, that, that he loved, it says. So, so it was part of the culture. If Jesus was passing away, the responsibility for the next son was upon, uh, to take care of mom, was, uh, but Jesus changed it and made it upon John. So, so Luke, when, when John, you know that John was in Ephesus for some time. When John was living in Ephesus, Mary was there because she was being taken care of by him as, as her supplier, her provider, Luke went there and interviewed Mary. So the account in Luke's gospel is actually from Mary herself. And if you read the first part of it, he says, the former account, O Theophilus, I have made regarding the things which were spoken over Jesus and, and the situation. So it's interesting to, to find that out. But go with me to Matthew chapter one. A quick and, and somewhat humorous little look here at the conception of Jesus. Verse, uh, Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Did you ever think how that played out? Because when, when I would read, you know, I've, I mean, I've got, how many Christmas messages do I have? after 38 years in the ministry. A lot of Christmas messages. And I was reading that one time and I just stopped right there. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost and Joseph being a just man. Now, according to the Old Testament, he could have reported her and had her stoned to death because she was betrothed to him, but she's just basically committed adultery. Some of you come from countries where the betrothal is as important as the actual ceremony itself. So it's interesting to me uh, how that played out. Joseph comes over one day, you know, to visit Mary, and um, she's starting to show a little bit. Like, how long did Mary wait until she told, did she wait until she was showing, or did she, like, fess up within the first few weeks? We don't know. The Bible just sort of leaves it open. But let's just say that she's, you know, she's getting a little bigger. It's three months along. And Joseph comes over, and they're sitting there having tea. And uh, Joseph looks over and says, Mary, you gained a little weight there. Never say that to your wife, ever, even if she did or is. I made the mistake one time early in the ministry with a couple that was in the church, and I was trying to be hopeful, and people were having babies. And I said to this one lady, I said, you look so good. Are you pregnant? She wasn't. That's the worst thing you could ever say if she's not pregnant, because it means that things are expanding. <laughs> and Mary's like looking at Joseph, uh, no, honey, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. What's that? I'm pregnant. What? Who? What? How? How could you do this? Well, it was God. Excuse me? It was God. Ah, oh, geez, Mary. Think about it. How long was that, that period of time until the angel showed up to help him out and say, uh, it actually was God? Like, how long was that period of time? Because Joseph, it says, it talks about it here. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, so he'd thought about it. 
How do I do this? What do I do with my wife? Well, I love her, but she's obviously been unfaithful. Can you imagine the, the, the divorce that happened in their emotional relationship right there? How's she gonna tell somebody else it was God? Who's gonna believe her? And how's he gonna even, it's impossible. What are you talking about? What are you, you, you just, how can this be? There was no way he could believe that until the angel showed up. It's interesting to me that God will let things happen in our life that make us go, what? How can that be? God is not primarily concerned about our comfort. Have you found that out yet? Think about the rumors that would have gone through their small community because now Mary's pregnant. Everybody knows they haven't gone through the celebration yet. The, the Jewish celebration in those days often went from three to seven days depending on the wealth of the family. So they're not married yet and she's pregnant and he's staying with her. You know what that means in the minds of the, of the community? They've broken the laws of Moses. They couldn't wait until the night. Imagine their reputation from that time on. Isn't that interesting? Mary's about to birth the son of the most high God and she has no reputation. What else? How else would anybody explain it? Because you can't tell everybody in town, well, it was God actually, right? If you're not willing to lose your reputation when God goes to do something in your life, you won't go very far. We lost our reputation a long time ago as a normal church. Well, them Southside people, man, they just worship all day. I mean, away they go, you know. All right, go with me to Luke chapter 2. Let's, let's, let's look at some of the things that really happened in the Christmas story. <coughs> Luke chapter 2, I'll start in verse 1. You can catch up because there's a lot of reading here. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from the angel that all the world should be registered. I just thought I'd jump on that. The census from Caesar Augustus, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered and taxed. That's what it was. Everyone to their own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Okay, just so you know, Nazareth is about 145 kilometers from Bethlehem. So it would have taken them about a week, depending on Mary's condition, but easily it would have taken them a week to get from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. Okay, so this is a major journey. Verse six, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I've had people say to me in the past, well, you know, Mary and Joseph were just poor and couldn't afford to go to the inn. And so they just had the baby in a manger. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there was no room in the inn. Like, what kind of a husband would he be when he'd just come into town and they go, honey, you know, there's something special about this. Let's just go over into the stall where the sheep are and we'll clean, the, we'll clean the poop out and we'll put some fresh straw in there and you can have the baby in a manger. She'd be like, are you serious right now? No, they went to the inn. They tried to get into the inn, but there was no, uh, there was no room. Verse eight, and there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. 
Now, I want you to pay attention here to the next few verses because they reveal something of what we're going to talk about this morning. Verse 21, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, that's Leviticus 12, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Here's a little insight into Mary and Joseph's actual journey. Moses' law said a woman's purification after a male child's birth had to be for 40 days. So Jerusalem is 10 kilometers north of Bethlehem. So rather than travel the 145 kilometers back to Nazareth with a little baby taking a week, possibly more, just to turn around two weeks later and come back, they would have stayed in Bethlehem. Because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, and the likelihood of him having relatives there that they could stay with until her days of purification were done was very high. So they were between 40 and 50, even 60 days still staying there before they went home. Hmm. The next part talks about Anna and Simeon, but skip down to verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Huh. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So somewhere in there, 40 days, 50 days, we don't know, something like that, they went back to Nazareth. Now, go with me over to Matthew chapter 2. Somebody says, I thought they lived there, and then they went to Egypt. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. This was always a bit of a paradox to me, because... We're, we're told that in the Old Testament, Israel got into astrology and the worship of the stars. They actually say when they unearthed the temple that was uh, alive, the temple that was being used in Jesus' day, that the zodiac had been put right into the floor of the temple with those tiny little um, tiles that are, are quite common in the, right in the temple The 12 signs of the zodiac were there. One of the things that Israel always fell back into was the worship of the heavens. So so when we come to this and and we find out the wise men see a star, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, but you have to ask yourself a question. And this is the question that came to me many years ago when I was studying this. I was like, wait a minute, these guys had something because not only did they know what country it was, but they knew the lineage. There's a king born that's the king of the Jews. They didn't come and say, yo, we saw a star. Is there like somebody important born here? We've come. No, they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So you have to ask yourself a question. Whatever knowledge these guys had, it was accurate and it led them to Jesus. Right? Nod your head. Come on. It's the truth. History tells us that the wise men came from as far away as Persia, which was some 1,500 kilometers. It would have taken them at least three to four months to make the trip. If you look in the book of Ezra, Ezra says that their trip from Persia, for which at that time it went from Babylon to Persia, so he was serving King Cyrus, and Cyrus was the one that Cyrus the Mede, or Cyrus the Persian, pardon me, was the one that let the Jews return, and he said it was four months' journey. So you've got to get a picture here that these guys are going on a journey that's four months one way. So they're taking four with eight, somewhere between eight and nine months out of their lives to make this journey. But I digress. The amount of preparation they would have had to to make would have been substantial. As I said, it was a once in a lifetime journey. 
<clears throat> for these scholars to be traveling with these gifts, they would have likely been quite a large company with armed guards, servants, and cooks, etc. One estimate that I read from the research of uh, one researcher was that the company may have possibly been into the hundreds, which is why not only was Herod stirred up, but it says all of Jerusalem was stirred up. One, one researcher said that the company would have been large enough that at first when the, 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 the watchers in Jerusalem, the scouts saw them, they would have thought it was an army coming towards Jerusalem. So we're not talking three guys on three camels. The picture is, is realistically is much, much bigger than that. They were also bringing gifts fit to give to a king. I want to bring perspective here. I looked this up because it says they were bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One bar of gold that's three inches by three inches by eight inches weighs 50 pounds. That 50 pounds of gold roughly the same numbers today and back then, would have been worth $1.1 million. We're talking one bar of gold this big. There were some estimates that there were as many as several dozen of these wise men that came bringing gifts. And you have to remember this. They were bringing gifts that they expected to give to a king who was in a palace as a baby, they were bringing, so they weren't bringing a little, a little change bag with five or six gold coins in it. They were bringing something representing the wealth and the knowledge of Persia to give to this king whom they, whom star they had seen. You ever wonder about what funded the trip to Egypt? At that time in history, frankincense and myrrh were worth more than gold. I've heard estimates on these gifts, totaling up to three and even five million dollars or more. Because they were gifts that were brought by kings, the kings of the east they're called, to the king. Isn't that interesting? These were not astrologers, as some have suggested, but astronomers, but here's the interesting thing. There is a strong probability that they would have been influenced by the prophet Daniel because of his prominence in the Babylonian Empire, which then fell to the Persian Empire. Remember, think, I mean, we, we, we don't put the pieces together, but think about this. Daniel, taken as a child with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and possibly many others, but we're not given any other names, comes there and talks to you know, they, they want to put him on the diet with a certain amount of wine and certain foods and this. And if you remember the story, Daniel, Daniel says, don't give us any of those things for 30 days and then test us afterwards. Because what the, what the Persians were doing was the same as the Babylonians. They would take the refugees or the, the, the captives, literally, from the other places. They would take those who were in school in school, those who were considered to be the intelligent ones, the wise ones, the spiritual ones, they would take those from the other nation and they would train them up because what they wanted was the best bloodlines. So they would train them up in the ways of the new culture so that they would be intelligent and they could be used by the new culture in the way that they use them. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through the test. They don't drink the wine. They don't eat the pork or any of those kinds of things. And the Bible says they were 10 times better than all of the other guys. Okay, so that's the start. Well, then Daniel gets the revelation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and, and says, here's the dream and here's the interpretation. And if you remember, the king of Babylon, who was over 120 provinces from India to Africa, the king falls down before Daniel and says, truly, you are one of the sons of the gods. And back then, they believed that men were actually gods. If you study the history of that whole thing, the Egyptians, the pharaohs were gods. They, were, they have descended from the gods. That was one of the beliefs that... That been. So, so Nebuchadnezzar says the only way you could know this is if you're tapped in. So think of Daniel's reputation over the course of the next several years. Over the course of his life, Daniel actually lived to be an old man, history tells us. But the revelations that he got, the revelation again about another one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams when he comes in and, and says, it's with the tree being cut off and bound with iron, and Nebuchadnezzar, of course, for seven years is, is like an animal where his hair grows in his hand. But Daniel prophesied that and told him this is what the dream means. 
And Daniel talked about the end times. You read in Daniel's book, and there's stuff in there that's the best definition of what's going to happen in the last days. And many of that's been fulfilled. Did you know that over 98% of all the Messianic scriptures in the Bible have been fulfilled? Less than 2% of the Messianic scriptures that are there uh, are, are to be fulfilled. So we definitely live close to the last days. But the, here's my point. The prominence that Daniel would have had in the Babylonian and then the Persian Empire, if you remember that uh, the son called Daniel and said, what's the meaning of the writing on the wall? He saw the hand right on the wall. He called Daniel in and said, get that old guy in here and many, many tekela parson. Your kingdom has been numbered. Your kingdom has been numbered. You've been found wanting and tonight your kingdom ends. And of course, that was the night that the Persians figured out how to break into Babylon, which nobody had broken into for a thousand years. The city of Babylon existed for a thousand years. And what they did was they went up into the mountains and they shut off the river so that they could go in underneath the city where the river was and they, they went into the city in the middle of the night and the same night that Daniel prophesied that was the night that the Medes came in and killed all the royal family but they kept the wise men and Daniel was one of those and Daniel was resourced by Cyrus the Persian. So his, his reputation would have been the top guy of the top empire of the world. Why'd you say all that? How did these guys from Persia, from the east, how did they get the information that they had? I believe this, and the research that I did backs it up. You can believe what you want. But they said that the influence that Daniel had about the Messiah and about his homeland was enough for the wise men, because of Daniel's reputation and what they learned from him, that the wise men learned from Daniel about the coming of the Messiah. And so when the star appeared, they knew how to interpret the star according to the writings or even the speaking of Daniel. Think of how many things Daniel would have shared to these other wise men that were coming up through the ranks that never got written in the book. Of all the things that I've read over the last 30, 40 years about who these wise men were, this one's the most plausible. The Bible says that Abraham, when Sarah died, he married Keturah and he married other women and had several sons. And the Bible says that he gave gifts to his sons and he sent them away to the east. The Bible says that, that Solomon was wiser than the men of the east. Solomon, of course, was before Daniel. So what you get here is a picture of these wise men that are coming because they know what they're coming for. Very interesting. Now, they came saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east. Look at verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. When he gathered the chief priests and scribes together, of the people, he required of, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now watch this part here, because it gives us another clue. Then Herod, verse 7, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Wait a minute, I thought the wise men followed the star all the way from Persia. So why would he ask them what time the star appeared? I'll come back to that. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Yeah, snake. Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Why did they rejoice with exceeding great joy? Because the star disappeared. If they'd followed, if the star was still there and they followed it all the way from Persia, they would have just followed it right to the place where Jesus was. But instead, they saw the star, they made their way to Israel, and they went to the palace expecting the king to be born in the palace. And of course, he wasn't there. Let's keep reading. And they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Oh, I love verse 11, because it messes everything up. 
And when they had come into the house, wait, what? Where's the manger? When they had come into the house, they saw the young child. So they, did, they, they didn't see the baby? Is he a baby or is he a young child? With Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So notice some important things here. They saw his star in the east, and in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great great joy. Why? Because there's no indication that the star led them on their whole journey. Why would you rejoice again? If the star led you to the palace, you walk outside, oh, well, there's a star. Let's go follow the star. Hmm? (laughs) You guys are looking the same way as 830. I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas. <laughs> so if you're like, oh God, what's happening to my Christmas? I wanted the star. Think about this. It appeared at the birth of the king and then reappeared when the, when the wise men were in Israel. Hmm. That's why they went to the palace expecting him to be there because the star wasn't leading them anymore. Are you here? <laughs> some of you like I've said so many times it's like I've got the cat turned around you ever rub the cat the wrong way and you get all that friction in your fingers <sighs> but now listen here's the deal Herod told them to go to Bethel because the priest told him that's where the baby was to be born so they left the palace expecting to go to Bethlehem which is 10 miles south of Jerusalem, but the star appeared and led them to Nazareth, where the young child and his family were living in Galilee. Why? Because it says in Luke's gospel, we read it, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. (laughs) This is great. Wait, what? Where's the manger? Well, sorry to mess up your nativity set. The wise men were never at the manger, nor were they ever in Bethlehem. But that's, that's sacred, Pastor. Don't, don't change the Christmas story. I'm not. I'm just reading the Bible. They came into the house. What? They had a manger out in front of the house, and that's where the, the cradle was, you know, the thing. And so let's, here comes the wise men. Let's bring Jesus out. Why? Because 2,000 years from now, we're going to need some heavy pictures for this kind of thing. To... <laughs> Sorry to mess up your nativity set. Now, once here, let's keep going. We're, we're, we've dug a hole. Let's just dig it deeper. <laughs> once Herod realizes they're not coming back, remember, Bethlehem is about eight kilometers from Jerusalem. So Herod realizes they're not coming back. So how long would that be after he talked to the wise men? A week, two weeks, three weeks? Like somewhere in there. Depends on their company and how long it would take them to go. He orders all the male children to and under in Bethlehem to be killed. Wait wait a minute. The wise men just came three weeks ago. So it should be the little babies, right? Let's kill the three-week-old babies. The key is in this verse. Why two and under? In verse seven, it says, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star appeared. When did the star appear? It appeared at the birth of the Savior two years ago when they were in Persia, and it took them how many months to get their company ready? Think about it. These guys are all, they're officials, they're businessmen, they're important people with influence, they're government officials, they're part of the priesthood, They can't just jump up and take off. They've got to prepare. Not only that, they're going to bring gifts. So they've got to put together a company of soldiers to take care of them, of cooks, of servants, of all of that. Like I said, the company. It's likely that they rode on horses and camels carried the the baggage. But we've got the picture of camels, and so that's fine. Camels can go, I believe camels can go for 80 miles on one... um, one drink of water. And that's why they're the the baggage carriers of the East because they can deal with that heat. But the star appeared two years ago 
And it was then they realized what it was and began to make preparation for their journey. So they said to Herod, we saw the star two years ago. Well, Herod must have known something about it then because he says, okay, when they left, he says, okay, I've got to kill everybody too. The only clue is that one right there. Something to do with the two years. So that's when they saw it, okay? <clears throat> but this creates another paradox. Let's look at the very next verses. Matthew chapter two, verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. Here's a key, key line. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Hmm. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So get the picture. Immediately after the wise men depart, the angel appears to Joseph and says, you need to flee to Egypt. But I'm like, oh, wait a minute. They're not in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is 145 kilometers from Nazareth. So, so Herod's going to go kill all the babies in Bethlehem, 145 kilometers away. You'd think they'd be safe, right? Bethlehem is slightly south of, uh, of Jerusalem. If you've ever been there, if you've been to Israel, it's kind of interesting. They actually have this, I forget what they call them, but it's like this sacred place where Jesus was born. And it's got all gold around it, and it's all, and I'm like, yeah, this isn't what it looks like when Jesus, but, but we religiousize things, you know. But then you've got eight, eight kilometers from there to Jerusalem, then you've got another 135 or 36 kilometers back all the way up to Nazareth, which is north and slightly west of Jerusalem. I remember going there when I was a kid when they didn't have all the problems. I was 19 when I was there the first time and they didn't have all the problems that they have now with, uh, with the fights and the wars and the animosity between. And so we could go to different parts of Israel without any, without any problem. Things have changed a little bit. So again, and this is for those of you that are Bible students that like to study these things out because that question came up to me as I was going through this this week. I said, wait a minute, they're in Nazareth. They're not in any danger. So I had to dig in a little bit. I had to dig into some history and dig into some research and, and find out. Found this out. That Herod, Herod's jurisdiction included Galilee. Now, if you, do, if you find anything about Herod, you'll find out, number one, he was not a good man. Number two, he was extremely paranoid. He was always fearful for his kingdom and he was completely self-consumed. As a matter of fact, he killed his wife and his two sons accusing them of treason. So here's a guy that would do anything to protect his throne. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, wait a minute, they're in Nazareth. They're 140 kilometers away. Like this isn't, but then thinking about that line, the angel said this to Joseph. He said, arise and flee to Egypt. And here's the line, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So when I put the pieces together, I thought, Herod is deathly afraid that he has a usurper that's coming up inside of his own nation. He was, he was committed to and serving the Roman government because of his position. All he had to do was get a hold of the census of the people that were in Bethlehem two years ago and find out the babies that were born there, and then find out there was one baby born here to Joseph and Mary, such and such, who normally live in Nazareth, because they came down from Nazareth, did the baby, was born, they went right back. So he would have been known. All Herod would have had to do is access that survey, that taxes to find out where they were now, because they would have had to write down everything on the tax form, just like you do. Oh, yeah. Governments never change, do they? <laughs> So he says to him, you need to arise and flee to Egypt. They estimate that the family was in Egypt between two and four years before they came back. And when they did, they returned to Nazareth to fulfill the scripture, he shall be called a Nazarene. Can you see how different that picture is than what, what, what we've thought? 
about where they actually were, about what actually happened. And let's face it, when you get to heaven, ask God for the replay. Okay, take us back in time. I want to see the thing. I want to see that time that they were there. They were there in Jerusalem. They would have been there in, in Bethlehem, like I said, for over a month, a month and a half. They were there waiting because she couldn't, they couldn't come and bring the sacrifice of the turtle doves or the, or the pigeons until she was ritually cleansed because she couldn't go into the temple. So you've got a whole bunch of these things that just make the story very interesting I believe this, I believe that the money that the uh, wise men brought to them set the business up, the family up in business for the rest of the family's life that they were taken care of. Not only that, and I love this part, Joseph was a carpenter. Well, carpenters in those days did everything. They did everything from build your furniture to build your house. They, they, were, they were the construction. One guy said the carpenter in those days was the general contractor. And I got to thinking about this. Jesus, who's perfect, who has no sin, can you imagine the creativity of somebody that has no sin? How about a memory? What would the memory be like for somebody that has no sin? You could tell them something and they'd remember it forever. But think of the creativity that Jesus would have growing up and watching his dad. And at 12 years of age, when they go into the temple... He's already so smart. He knows he's the son of God. He says, well, are you surprised that I'm about my father's business? Imagine what Jesus would do at 12 years of age when dad's making a piece of furniture and Jesus says, dad, what if we did this with this furniture? What do you mean, son? Well, what if we took this kind of wood and we blended it with this kind of wood and what if we did a tongue and groove kind of a, what's a tongue and groove, boy? Think of the creativity of this 12-year-old boy who's the son of God. What I mean, I don't know about you, but, but how much would you pay for furniture that Jesus made? <laughs> Think of what he would make. He would come up with new ways of cutting, new ways of making things, new ways of staining. He'd come up with blending. He was the one that created all the wood in the world. He was the one that created all the different kinds of, of, of lacquer and things like that. He would be the one that would think that up. How, how many times people say to me, well, Jesus was poor. No, he was not poor. He wore a garment that was so good looking <clears throat> Sorry. Is he always like this? No, but we're having fun, okay? So chill out. He wore a garment that was so good looking that the soldiers said, let's don't tear that one off. Let's gamble for that one. Instead of the, the, the sergeant just saying, okay, I want his garment. It was so good looking. They put money down for one each other and they gambled for it and somebody won it. Why? Because he was wearing something that was really good. Well, I think Jesus was poor. Well, a poor man doesn't have a treasurer, does he? And there must have been enough money in that bag for Judas to be stealing out of it or the sons of thunder would have laid a beating on that boy when they found out that he was taking stuff out of the bag because the Bible says that Judas took what was in the bag. Think about that. If they were barely getting by, do you remember what happened? Well, I'm on the subject. Do you remember what happened? <laughs> on the night that Jesus was betrayed when he said to Judas, go, go. <clears throat> Quickly and do what you're doing. And the Bible says that the rest of the disciples thought he was telling him to go and give something. Right? Come on, nod your head. That's in the Bible. How much must Jesus have been giving all the time? How much must Jesus have been just giving stuff away all the time? Just giving all the time. Judas, go and do what you're going to do and do it quickly. In other words, go. And the guys thought, oh, he's going to give again. Unless he was doing that kind of thing all the time, they wouldn't think that, would they? Little did they know that he was saying, Judas, you better go and do what you... you it's interesting if you read, there's three times that night that Jesus warned Judas. You read it in the text. There's three times that Jesus warned Judas, one of you will betray me. And he goes through the... You know what he was doing? He was having mercy on Judas. Because if Judas... He was giving Judas the choice, don't do it. Don't do it. You don't have to do this. The word of God will come to pass somehow. Somebody will betray me, but it doesn't have to be you. You look at it. You read it in your own Bible three times that night. He said to Judas in, in a roundabout way, Judas, don't do it. Until finally they said, okay, Lord, who is it? And it said, he to whom I give the, the, the bread that was dipped in the wine. It's he to that whom I, I give it. And the Bible says that after he gave him that, the devil entered Judas. 
That was his third chance. He could have fallen down right there and said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've had this plan and, and I needed the money and, and I, I'm just, I repent and, and, I, and I'm not gonna do it. God would have made it happen some way, but Jesus was trying to spare Judas, who was the treasurer. Huh, interesting, isn't it? Why don't you stand up? Now, don't go home and throw out all the animals on your nativity set. Because if the only ones that were there, there's no sheep, there's no donkey, there's no cows, there's nothing like that. There's a, if the only ones that were there was a shepherd, it's going to be a pretty bare nativity set. Somebody came up to me after the first service and said, we should market the house and show the wise men outside the house. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that'll sell because it just doesn't have, the, doesn't have the same pizzazz. But I shared this with you because I wanted us, I want, I want our church to know Instead of just going by all the traditions, and traditions are wonderful, but when traditions aren't accurate according to the scripture, then there's something you gotta go, wait a minute, why does the Bible say this and say that when it, when it doesn't look like that? And again, I'm not against traditions. You know, we, we do the same thing. Um, the grandkids go to Santa Claus in the mall. They take them to Santa Claus. And it's funny, because one year they took him to Santa Claus, and the guy was so skinny, I thought he was anemic. I thought, this is the, this is the mall Santa Claus? I want ho, ho, ho. Like, I want, you know, the belly that jiggles like a bowl full of jelly. So don't get bent out of shape about what's true and what's not true in regards to those kinds of things. Come back to the bottom line. The bottom line is that the father sent his son to be born and become a man, just like you and I, to be dealt with the same things that we have to deal with. People think it's weird. I don't say it to be crude, but you got to think Jesus went to the bathroom just like you and I do. Jesus had to get up and get dressed in the morning. In all things, he was made to be like us so that he could suffer in our position and then die for our sins. I'm going to pray a prayer here. If you've never prayed this prayer, we're going to pray it as a congregation. But if you've never prayed this prayer and asked Jesus and just basically given him your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. It changed me from a drug dealer in Calgary who had nothing better in my life than sports and girls and partying to 45 years later, walking with Jesus, enjoying his presence, laughing today when we're singing joy, unspeakable joy, as the joy just bubbles up from the inside, so much better than all the drugs, so much better than all that stuff that the world has out there. And if you've never done it, you guys, you have an opportunity between you and him to say, Jesus, you did all this for me. And today I open my heart. And I want to challenge you to do that if you've never done it. I want to challenge you to say to Jesus, here I am. And if, if you knew him years ago, but things got hard and you've kind of walked away or you kind of backslid, it's like, yeah, whatever, religion, all that. Then what you've got to do is peel away some of that hardness of heart and just say, Lord, I walked with you at one time. Why have I walked away? Why is it hard now? Why am I not enjoying what I may have enjoyed at one time? I like the song that Petra used to sing years ago. Though you've taken a thousand steps the wrong way, it's only one step right back. One step back to saying, here I am, here's my heart. Let's pray this together. Say it out loud. Father God. Hey, everybody. Thank you for... I come to you today. Christmas Eve day in 2023 and I open my heart today because I believe that you sent Jesus to be born on this earth to live amongst us and then to die for our sins and so Jesus today I ask you to come into my heart to come into my life and to take over I believe you created me and I know one day I'm going to die. Whether that day is soon or whether it's later, I will leave this body. So I trust today that as I give you my heart and ask you to come and change my life, that you hear my prayer, the prayer of a simple man to reach out to God my creator. 
I ask these things today because I mean it. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, if you want to take a couple of minutes afterwards, come up and see Pastor John. We've got some material that we'll want to give you just to invite you and welcome you to the kingdom. Um, and there's lots more after that. Glory to God. You ready for Christmas? So how many of you have wrapped your presents? Whoa. Okay, second question. How many of you have not wrapped your presents? Come on, be honest. So a whole bunch of you that didn't put your hand up for anything. How many of you love your mom? Wow, that's a good thing. I say over you today, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you all this Christmas week and give you peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a good Christmas, everybody. If you need some prayer, come on up. We got some prayers here. We hope you enjoyed the service. If you'd like more information about Southside Victory Church, download our app from the App Store, follow us on social media, or check out our website at svcf.ca. If you'd like to hear more from Pastor Craig, you can check out www.timesofrefreshing.com or follow Times of Refreshing on social media to see if he's speaking in a city near you. You can connect with the church anytime, give us a phone call, or send us an email. Thanks again for joining us in building a community of believers together. We'll see you next week.